Well, thank you, Grant, for doing our scripture reading this morning. And uh, we are going to be here in Ezra 3 today and uh, continuing in this series we've called Reclaim, discussing how God reclaimed his people from their time of captivity in Babylon and called them to uh, rebuild his place, primarily uh, this thing called the temple, which, of course, represented the presence of God among his people. And so uh, today we're going to see the foundation of the temple being laid once again in Jerusalem. But there's, a, there's an order of things here in Ezra 3 that I think is very important for us, especially in the day in which we're living, to understand the, the way in which God does what God does. God is always orderly. He is not a God of disorder. He is a God of order. We see that demonstrated in creation. Uh, we see that demonstrated in everything that God does. There's an orderliness to it. And so here we find an orderliness as well in Ezra chapter 3 as we see that, that first there had to be the building of this thing called the altar, which we'll talk about what it was. And then there came later the building of this thing called the temple. And that order really lays out what we're seeing in Ezra 3 and is instructive for us in a way that I hope you'll understand before we finish today. And so I've entitled today's message, Altar Before Temple. And our key theme today is this, that in, in God's worship order, the way that God does things, the altar must necessarily come before the temple. And I hope you'll understand why that's important as we finish up this morning, the altar before the temple. And so the first point today is this, that the altar must come first. And so we see the people beginning with the building of this thing called the altar, the, the place where sacrifices would be made unto God. And we notice that the, the timing of this was very important as well, that this was the seventh month. The time of the seventh month was a very holy time. In fact, it was the most holy time of the year on the Jewish calendar. The seventh month of the year began on the very first day with this thing called the Feast of the Trumpets. And the priests and the Levites would go out in, in the towns and the villages and they would blow trumpets and it was, a, it was a call to worship. It was calling the people back to the places of worship and calling them to lift up praises to God. So the very first day of the seventh month was a, a call to worship on the, the Feast of Trumpets. And it led up to the 10th day of the month, which was the most holy day of the entire year, the Day of Atonement. And in the days of the tabernacle and the temple, those were, that was the day on which the high priest, the one day of the year in which he would go into the most holy place, the holy of holies. And he would take the blood of, of, of the sacrificed lamb and he would sprinkle that blood upon the mercy seat. And it was a symbol of atonement being made for the people of God, the covering for their sins, their sins being atoned for on that day of atonement once a year, the most holy of days. But then about a week later, after the day of atonement, they would celebrate the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles in which the people would kind of have a, a, a a citywide camping trip, if you will. They would all go out and they would live in booths and they would live in tents. They would live in, 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 in temporary dwellings for a week. And that was a reminder to them of the 40 years that they had lived in the wilderness as, as nomads as God was leading them from Egypt into the promised land. 
And, and as we consider this seventh month, we remind ourselves that there, was a lot of, there were a lot of holy things going on during that time. So again, we see the Feast of Trumpets, the first day of the month, the Day of Atonement, the tenth day of the month, and then the fifteenth day of the month, we began this Feast of Booths. So a lot of things were going on that were all geared toward one common goal, which was this, the worship of Almighty God. That's what it was all about. We can sometimes get so caught up in the details of what they did on the Feast of Trumpets or what they did on the Day of Atonement or how they carried out the, the Feast of Tabernacles. But we need to understand that all of it was geared toward one primary objective, which was the worship of Almighty God. And by the way, that is why we are gathered here this morning. Yes, we are gathered here to fellowship with one another and to enjoy the time that we have together as the people of God. Yes, we come together to give of our, our tithes and offerings. Yes, we come together to sing and to hear the word of God proclaimed. But all of these things are geared toward one overriding goal, which is the worship of God. And so as they begin to erect this altar, this place of sacrifice, we see that the one who's taking the lead there in verse 2 is this one named Jeshua, who is also sometimes referred to as Joshua. He was the high priest. He was a descendant of Aaron. And it was, it was right. It was right that the high priest should be the one to lead in uh, the erection of the altar, to be the one who would rebuild that place of sacrifice because it was the priests who were given the job of offering those sacrifices to God. And so they, he leads out in this work accompanied by various others that you see there in verse 2. This team begins to rebuild this altar, this place of sacrifice, and immediately... They begin to sacrifice to God once again in worship of Him. But I want you to notice, beginning in verse 2 through verse 5, there are some terms that are laid down here about their worship. I think sometimes we think that we can worship God however we want to. But God has given us terms by which we are to worship. There are things that are non-negotiable. And in a day like we're living in right now, where one of the hot burner issues in the church is, should we be singing in a day of social distancing and masks? I would say without any hesitation, we must sing because it's commanded by the Word of God. Not to sing is not to worship by God's definition. It would be like saying, well, we're going to come together, but we're not going to preach the Word of God. Again, that would be not to worship by God's definition. There are some very few things that are commanded in Scripture, carried over into these New Testament days, that we must do in order for worship to take place. Just like in the Old Testament days, in order for them to worship, there must be an altar, and ultimately there must be a temple. There are some musts, there are some essentials, if you will, that we must do as the people of God in order for worship to take place. Place. And that's what God is doing here. And so we begin to see in verse 2 that the terms are related to this. It's all about word-directed worship. It's all about God's word detailing what they are to do and how they are to do it. Look with me in verse 2. 
it says that as they began to rebuild this altar, they offered burnt offerings on it. And then you notice this word, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. The law of Moses, the man of God, gives instructions for the worship of God's people in those Old Testament days. And so they set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And then notice verse 4. And they kept the feast of booths as it is written. Well, where is it written? Well, go back to those first five books of the Bible, and you see directions about the Feast of Booths and the other six feasts that would happen throughout the year. As it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule. Where do you find the rule? In the Word of God. According to the rule. And, and then they, and in verse 5, in the regular burnt offerings at the new moon and all the appointed feasts of the Lord. Well, who appointed them and where are they appointed? In the Word of God. I'm laboring hard over this point because I want us to understand that what we do when we come together in worship is not just whatever our heart desires, but whatever the heart of God desires. That's what we must do. That's why we must sing and we must preach and we must give and we must pray. Those are four essentials that are laid down for us in the Word of God. That's not an exhaustive list, but it is an essential list. And so the Word of God directs the people of God in the worship of God. We shouldn't be surprised by this. 2 Timothy 3 reminds us that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and then equipped for every good work. And church, what we're here to do together this morning is a good work. It's good to hear God's people sing His praises and clap their hands in praise to Him. It's good to hear us offer up prayers and petitions to the Lord. It's good for us to give of our tithes and offerings in obedience to God, giving back to Him some of what He has entrusted to us. It's good for us to sit under the preaching of God's Word and be instructed by the Word of God in our lives. These things are good, and we should desire them. And the Word of God equips us for these things. Good works. But again, I want you to notice something. I'm going to go back to this. It says of these folks that in, in verse 3, they set up the altar. They set the altar. Why? Notice the reason. For fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. Now, isn't that interesting? If you understand this rightly, that would have been a good reason not to set up the altar. Because it's the altar that's going to tick off the peoples of the lands, the people that had come to inherit the promised land and in that 70 years that they had been in captivity in Babylon. It's the altar that's going to represent the fact that God's people are returning. We're taking up residence here again. God is moving and working in this place once more, and you better watch out. It was the altar that was going to become a living symbol of the fact that God and his people had returned to the land and they were going to take charge of it once more. And yet, in the same moment when the peoples, when they feared the peoples of the land, they knew in our place of fear, we must walk in faith. 
And church, I just want to say, and regardless of where you stand on these things, I don't, I don't mean to offend anybody this morning. I'm just going to share with you from my own heart. I truly regret the fact that in March of this year, when fear over a virus began to rise up in our faces, that we then, instead of running hard after worship, shut our doors for two months. I personally, pastorally, I regret that. I am seeing on a weekly basis the effects of what has happened among us as the people of God when for so many there was a two-month hiatus from worship. And we say, well, we still had online church. That is no church, folks. I've talked about this. That is no substitute for us coming together as the people of God. I hope you understand and see that. And my heart is grieved that still to this day, there are a third of us who were here in the early months of this year who have not yet been able to return. And we need to be grieved for that. And we need to continue to reach out to those who have not yet returned to be with us. But we need to recognize, we need to recognize that what they were doing here in Ezra 3, this coming together as one man, that's how it starts out. Coming together as one man, that, that is definitive of what it means to be the church. And I so wish I had a do-over of those days in March. I so wish I had a do-over on some of those decisions that we would not have taken a two-month break. Instead, we would have, in the midst of our fear, walked in faith as they did. It was because they feared that they built the altar. Do you see that? And may it be for us that in these days, that in the days where fear abounds, that we would run forward by faith and not shrink back in fear. I know that's not going to get a lot of amens this morning, but I'm just going to let it linger. It's just where my heart is on the issues of our, of our day. Then notice, there was a task here, particularly an unfinished work. There was an unfinished work that was still lingering there. It's there in verse 6. They began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but notice... But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. There was still something to be done, and it was no small something. It would have been easy for them to have looked upon the altar and the renewal of the sacrifices and the renewal of worship there in that place, and it would have been enough for them to it would have been easy for them to say, Well, that seems to be enough. Praise God, He's given us an altar. But they knew that they had been called to so much more than just an altar. They had a greater task. Derek Kidner said it would have been easy for them to rest content with the bare fact of arrival and resettlement in the homeland. But there was the king's business, the temple, to attend to. And church, I want to say to us today, we still are called to be about the king's business. We come together on Sunday morning to be a part of the king's business. And we are sent out of this place on Sunday morning to be about the king's business. And when you go to your workplace on Monday morning, you are called to be a part of the king's business. And when you are helping your kids work through their online education starting this week, that's part of the king's business. And may we never forget we are called into the kingdom of God to be about the king's business. There is an unfinished work 
yet before us today. It's called the Great Commission. That we would go to all nations with this thing called the gospel and make disciples of Jesus Christ and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all that He has commanded us. And there is plenty to teach. And He's promised to be with us in it in this unfinished work. And finally, there's a truth about the altar here that I want us to see. Because I think for many folks in the American church today they've come to an altar but they never went any farther and I want us to understand this morning there is something necessary beyond the altar it's not optional that we go beyond the altar the altar is the place of sacrifice And it's a good place and a rightful place and a place of beginnings. But there's something beyond the altar that we must get to. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But the altar here, the truth is this. The altar finds its ultimate fulfillment in the cross. We don't build altars anymore. I know sometimes we talk about on platforms like this, like the altar. We go and we pray at the, at the altar. Really, that's not the best terminology in light of what we're seeing here in this text. The, the rightful understanding is the altar, the place of sacrifice, has found its fulfillment in the cross of Jesus Christ. We're no longer sacrificing bulls and goats and rams anymore. There's no need for that because there's been a sacrifice made that has fulfilled all those sacrifices. And the Word of God reminds us that the blood of all those bulls and goats and rams that were sacrificed for all those many years never atoned even for one sin. They simply looked forward to the blood of the one who would atone for all sin. Hebrews 10.10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So there's no more need for the day of atonement for a high priest to go into a holy of holies and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat because that's been fulfilled in the cross of Christ and the blood of Christ has been poured out for the redemption of all of our sins, for the covering of all of our sins, for the atoning of all of our sins. And it's through faith in him that we no longer make those Old Testament sacrifices. We look to the one who has fulfilled them all. We trust in him to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. This is the altar. But I want you to see, church, there is something that must necessarily follow after the altar. Yes, we come to the altar as living sacrifices, Romans 12, 1 says. But I want you to understand this morning, there's a place we must go after the altar that is essential as well. You see, the temple must then follow. So let's talk about the laying of the foundation of this second temple here in Ezra 3. Again, there was a specific time given here. It was the second month, as we see there in verse 8. And the second month was a historic time. There's a reason why they chose this particular time of year to begin this grand work of building that second temple because they were looking back a few hundred years to the time of King Solomon and the building of the first temple, 1 Kings 6, 1. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is what? The second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. 
And so why did they begin to build in the second month? Because that's when Solomon began to build that first temple and they were trying to remind themselves of all that God had done. Now, interestingly enough, there would be some things that God did in Solomon's temple that would not happen with the finishing of Zerubbabel's temple. When Solomon's temple was finished and dedicated, the glory of God came down and the priests couldn't even do their work because the the cloud of God's glory was so thick in that place, they couldn't do anything. That didn't happen when Zerubbabel's temple was finished. We might wonder, well, why didn't God show up at the second temple like he did at the first? Because he was going to show up at the second temple in the person of Jesus Christ. That would be the fulfillment yet to come. They were longing for something that was more. This team, not led by Jeshua, was led by Zerubbabel, and rightly so. This descendant of Solomon, this man named Zerubbabel, who had been one of the leaders of the people coming back into the land, Zerubbabel would rightfully rightfully be the one to lead in the rebuilding of the temple and the building of this second temple as a descendant of Solomon, the original builder. In the terms, once again, we see it here. It's word-directed worship. Again, we cannot just do whatever we want in worship. God has given us things that we must do in worshiping Him. And so they sang responsively. According to the directions of David, king of Israel, they sang praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And this is the song they sang. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the Lord, house of the Lord was laid. Sometimes we are all together too quiet in our worship. I'm convinced of that. Where did they get this song? We see it multiple times. First, Corinthians, First Chronicles 16, they sang this song as David brought the ark into the city of Jerusalem for the first time. The ark of the covenant that represented, again, the presence of God among his people. As they came parading the ark into the city of Jerusalem, they sang this song, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And in the next generation, when Solomon brought that ark into the temple for the first time when the temple was completed and they brought that ark into the temple in Second Chronicles 5 they sang for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever and shortly thereafter when they dedicated that temple and the glory of God came and fell upon that temple so thickly that the priests could not even do their work they sang for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever And by the way, this is indicative of the kinds of songs that we should be singing in our churches. We don't need to sing man-centered songs in our churches. We don't need to sing Jesus is our boyfriend songs in our churches. If you don't know that terminology, if you can take a worship song and just as easily sing it to your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend as you could to Jesus, we don't need to be singing that in our churches. There's far too much of this garbage in the church today. And I want to say to us today, we need to be singing songs that rightfully represent the God of this word. 
I'm so thankful for the songs that we sang this morning. I'm thankful for our worship leader and how God has tuned his heart in that way to selecting songs that will rightfully represent the God of this word. And not, again, not just singing what's popular, not just singing what, what tickles our ear or suits our fancy, but singing that which represents the God of the Bible. And that's what they sang when they began to lay the second foundation, the foundation of this second temple. They began to sing that old song that had led them through so many years. Our God is good, and His steadfast love endures forever. But you'll notice it wasn't all praise. There were on that day also a mixture of tears. Because again, there was an unfulfilled hope. There's been a lot written, a lot of ink spilled over why this older generation that had seen the first temple, why did they weep on the day when the foundation of the second temple was laid? Some have said, well, perhaps it was because uh, the second temple didn't look nearly as glorious as the first. We don't know if that's the case or not. Perhaps it was a matter of nostalgia. They just thought back to the glory days of Israel under, under David and under Solomon and, and many of the kings to follow. And they, they just remembered that nostalgia, that thinking back to the good old days, that, that that brought them to weeping. But I tend to think that it was something else. I tend to think that they were reminded of that day a couple generations back when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came in with his armies and broke down the walls of Jerusalem and came to that place which was at the very center of life in Jerusalem, the temple of the living God, and he burned it to the ground. And he carried off all the vessels used in worship. And he desecrated and decimated the place where the people of God worshipped the one true and living God. They remembered that day they remember that day when the flames weren't just upon the altar, the flames were upon the temple. And they grieved because they also remembered why Nebuchadnezzar was able to conquer them. It was because of their sin. And church, I just want to say to us this morning, may we have a holy grief over sin. And I'm not just talking about sin out there. That should grieve us. But may we have a holy grief over sin in our midst. You see, Israel had experienced the effects of sin and death in the camp when God's people chose to do their own thing instead of God's thing. Remember the battle at Ai? That battle shortly after the, the victory at Jericho, that, that little town of Ai that they just sent a small contingent of troops to go and conquer because they thought, no, but they're not going to do anything. This is going to be simple. And, and the Israelites were utterly beaten down, not because God, not because God caused them to be beaten down any more than that they had sinned against God. Because one among their number had disobeyed God and God had removed his hand of protection. I can't help but wonder if that's on a similar day to what we're living in right now. In this pandemic and all that's going on in our land, if it's not simply a picture of God 
giving us over to what our own sinful disobedience has earned. And rather than being rocked by that, or rather than, than being distraught by that, perhaps our response to that should be a rightful repentance. When was the last time that you were truly moved to weeping by the effects of sin? Sin in your own life, sin in your own family, sin in your own church? Oh, we'll raise our fists and talk about all the travesties that are happening out in the culture. We should expect those things. But you see, I think that one of the reasons these old folks in Ezra 3 were weeping was because they remembered it was their own sin that led to the burning of the first temple. And so there was a mixture on that day of weeping and rejoicing so much that the two couldn't be distinguished. What an amazing picture here at the end of Ezra 3. Weeping and rejoicing, the two could not even be separated from one another. And I think it's a picture of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, which says we are treated as impostors and yet are true. Church, this is us. We are treated as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. And we are that mixture. It almost sounds schizophrenic. How can you be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing? And yet that is the Christian life in a broken world. We ought to be sorrowful over the effects of sin and death that are all around us. And yet we ought to be always rejoicing because we know that the kingdom of God has already come in victory. That's what the cross was about. God was not defeated at the cross. God stamped his victory over it all at the cross. When Jesus said it's done, the war of sin and death was finished there. There will be many battles and skirmishes until he returns for his people. But the war has already been won. So we are a people to be always rejoicing because we are existing on the winning side. And we are to go out on the highways and the byways and to beckon others to come to the winning side and to bow their knee to King Jesus in repentance and faith. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That characterizes the Christian life, this side of the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. And so the altar must come first. We are to be living sacrifices, but the temple must then follow. And the temple finds its fulfillment in the church. Don't miss this. The temple finds its rightful fulfillment in the church. We looked at this last week in 1 Peter 2, that picture of 1 Peter 2, 5 of us being living stones built up as a spiritual house. There is no purpose in us making pilgrimages to Jerusalem anymore. You're not going to find a temple there, by the way, anyway. Now, you may go there on vacation. I've always wanted to visit there. But there's no spiritual purpose in us going to Jerusalem. You're not going to find a temple there because the temple is here. We are the temple of the living God. We are those living stones. As he says in 2 Corinthians 6.16, 6, 6, we are the temple of the living God. God said, I will make my dwelling among them. 
and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, where does that phrase come from? It comes from the Old Testament covenants. Again and again, God would make this promise. It began with Abraham, and I went all the way through those Old Testament days, but it's fulfilled in the church. That God dwells with us. He has set up his tabernacle amongst us. He has come to live within us. We are the people of God, his temple. We are those living stones being built up as a spiritual house. We are the people called to be holy, called to be that nation of priests. We are those that he has redeemed. We are his people and he is our God. And so I would ask you this morning, has there come a time when you have come to the altar of the living God? Again, the altar is a place of sacrifice, of the laying down of life. It found its complete and utter fulfillment in the cross of Jesus Christ. Has there come a time in your life when you have come to the foot of of the cross and recognize that the one who died there died there for your redemption that all your sins might be washed away that you may be made new in him have you come to the altar of his cross but again my fear for us is is this that there have been many who have come to the altar who never have gone beyond to the temple well, we've come to the altar, we, we, we came and we prayed a prayer and we got dunked in a baptistry and, and, and then we just kind of thought, well, that's, we kind of checked that box off. And it would have been like on that day if they had built that altar and they'd begun those sacrifices and they said, our work is done, but the work wasn't done because they were called to build a temple. And I want to say to us, it's the same thing for us. We've been called to more than just an altar. We've been called to go to begin there at the altar. And that's so necessary. But then to move on to that temple, being a part of the work of the church, being a part of being those living stones that are being built up, being a part of the Great Commission and the work of making disciples. This is temple work. We are erecting the temple whenever we see someone come to faith in Christ and we help them to grow up in faith in Christ. We are doing temple work whenever we come together on Sunday mornings and we sing and we pray and we preach and we give. We are doing temple work and it is essential. It's essential. No matter what our leaders may say out in the government, this is essential work because it's eternal work. And so are you a part of the kingdom work of Almighty God? It begins at the altar, but it goes on to the temple. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this picture in Ezra 3. Just like this older generation picture, pictured here, there is for us in this day a mixture of of weeping and rejoicing, great sorrow and great joy to the point where we, we, we could almost feel uh, schizophrenic, almost feel uh, crazy at times that this mixture is so real for us. And yet this is the rightful posture 
of the people of God in a broken world. One day, all our tears will be wiped away. One day, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. One day, we will hear those glorious, sweet words. Behold, I make all things new. Until that day, Father, would you lead us? Would you lead us to the altar, that place of the cross? Remind us of our Savior's sacrifice for us. And from that place, lead us on to the temple, to the work of living stones, building a spiritual house, making disciples. May we be about your kingdom work in our homes this week. May we be be about your kingdom work in our workplaces this week, in this community, in every place that we go. May our eyes be fixed upon the unfinished work of the kingdom. But Father, also remind us this work is not dependent upon us. You will complete the work you have begun but you have invited us into it as an act of grace. So may we be more about building your kingdom this week than about building our own. Father, lead us in repentance. Strengthen our faith, we pray in Jesus' name.